Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. It's Erev Tanit Esther. We're going to wake up tomorrow morning to the fast of Esther. And as Temple Beth Am thought about its offerings of Torah teachings in and around Purim, leading up to the amazing grouping of teachings that Rabbi Schatz is putting together up until Pesach, we thought we would focus on something we rarely focus on. Tanit Esther is not something that is often focused on in a community such as ours, except for individual people's fasting, if they are, and the liturgical changes that are made in davening. If anything, it's, 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 it's an issue in terms of the race to figure out how to finish Mincha tomorrow afternoon with Haftorah and Torah reading and Abinu Malkeinu and all that, and somehow get some food in uh, in the midst of a, of a crazy Purim evening. We don't necessarily linger on the fast itself. And this year, we thought we would do so, A, because why not? We're always looking for new things to explore in our community. And because on a lunar level, our odometer is switching over again. The Jews mark COVID on some level, certainly COVID's intensity in the United States, by Purim. Last year, Purim was the last kind of normal indoor thing that at least the Jewish community in Los Angeles did. I remember we were nervous in advance. Should we be doing more? Should we be doing less? Were we overreacting? Were we underreacting? We had a Megillah reading. It was small because people, some people were already in the, in the zone of being more careful than they were obligated to be. It was lovely. Uh, I hope no one got sick as a result of our gathering. I didn't learn of anyone who did. Uh, and then things changed rather quickly. And so we thought it would be an opportunity for us to come back this year and not necessarily focus on Tanit Esther itself, although I will focus on Esther a bit, but just focus it on it as a, a marker for what it has meant to been, be in this cave for a year. And I'm using the word cave for a reason, as will become clear. And what might be on our minds and on our souls as we plan to emerge. We're going to emerge soon, right? We're going to emerge at different paces based on our age and how, whether or not we're vaccinated, based on what city we live in and what the regulations are, based on how frightened we are, how, um, how much PTSD we have from this experience. But we're going to emerge soon. And the question is, what piece of us should emerge? What qualities should be surrounding us as we break back into this light? So what I want to do first before we jump into this teaching, because this is really going to be tech study, is just to center ourselves for a second. So whether or not this is part of your normal practice, I want to ask you to close your eyes. We'll do this very quickly. Just settle yourself into your body. Identify, even if this seems obvious, where you are in the chair, or on the couch, in the room that you find yourself in, in your home, on your block, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your state, your place on earth. And in whatever way immediately comes into your consciousness, I just want you to look backwards about a year. However you see time in your mind, it might be a matrix, might be a list. Suddenly you see last December, last October, and the high holidays. And you see the summer, the summer that was and the summer that wasn't. And you go back through Shavuot, what your experience was like and how different it was from the year before. The weirdness and oddness of Pesach, such a significant part of nearly every active Jew's life and so soon into the pandemic, and so are not really yet being practiced on how to do it. And then go back to Purim, wherever you were a lunar year ago, 
and just linger for a few seconds as emotions and thoughts and images and feelings from these last 12 moons just suffuse your mind and serve as the groundwater, the spring for the learning that we're going to do tonight, which I will present from some texts that ultimately will live in your minds based on how your spirit responds to them. Ready, you can open your mind, your eyes, and your mind. You know, of the minor fasts, Tanit Esther is the only fast that commemorates a fast. Most of the fasting that we do in the Jewish tradition is either for a, uh, a spiritual cleanse, Yom Kippur, or sort of a commemoration of misery, Tisha B'Av, and ones associated with it, maybe a communal penance for Tzom Gedalia for the circumstances that allowed a Jewish G uh, governor to be assassinated. But Tani Esther, we are fasting because of the fasting of Esther and Shushan and the Shushanites, which means that we are hearkening back to a moment, whether fabled or real, depending on your read of the whole story, where our spiritual ancestors lived through restraint and restriction and withdrawal for a very particular aim, which was salvation. And so while most of this teaching is not going to be focused on the holiday of Tanit Esther itself, in some ways, what our tradition says they did is what some Jews are going to do tomorrow for 13 hours or so, but what all of us have been doing for a year, which is to hold back, not yield to our urges and needs for a teleological purpose, so that at the end of this darkness, there can be life again for us and for others. And so we enter into the learning with that uh, frame. Um, I'm going to teach about four texts. Some of the texts are going to have several components. Uh, some of them are quite long. Some of them are short. The long ones deserve a year's worth of study. Some of the long ones will be familiar to some of you. My guess is that not all of the long, long ones will be familiar to any of you. Could be, though. And we're going to go quickly only because, you know, this is going to be about an hour, hour and a quarter, and I'm sensitive to everyone's time. Um, but four different ways I want to address this question of what we should be emerging from this quarantine, from this withholding as and with. So um, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to both share my screen um, and also give you the link. Um, one second. So that if you want to actually open the text directly yourself, you can. If that's easier for you than just watching my screen. So I'm going to put that into the chat. It's literally the same thing. It just depends on how you enjoy doing. Hold on. So in the chat is a Google Doc. And you can open it. Open it. Everyone should have access to it. I'm also going to share my screen. Okay. Let's start with the Book of Esther. And a verse and a commentary that I found while preparing for another teaching I did earlier in this, in, in the month of Adar, that, I, that that's been sitting with me for quite some time. And I wanted to teach it over again, mostly because it's still on my mind. And because I don't think anyone who is on this zoom was present when I taught it in a different setting. The verse you might know, you might know it either because you know the book of Esther well, 
or you might know it because you do Havdalah, because this verse makes it into Havdalah. And where are we? We're in the eighth chapter of Esther, right? So almost at the end, uh, Esther is 10 chapters. The 10th one is very, very short. We're at the end of the eighth chapter. And after the Jews of Shushan were spared the catastrophe of Haman's plot, the Megillah says, La Yehudim, to the Jews, Haita, there was four nouns that are either full synonyms or at least cousins of one another. Ora, light. Simcha, happiness. Sason, joy, rejoicing. Yikar, honor or glory. Right? Certainly when we read the Torah, we look at it as if each word makes a huge difference. And even Megillat Esther, right? There's no sense that, the, that, that no matter what your understanding of the revelation at Sinai was, there's no sense that the provenance of the book of Esther is divine. God doesn't even appear in the book. But we ascribe to it uh, a certain applied sanctity. And so we wonder, right, in, in, in a sacred way that, we, that we, we wonder, like, why Shakespeare chose this word? Why, when conveying the Israelites' exaltation after having been spared, we've got more words than one, and why these particular words, right? Is it just, is it, is it repetition for repetition's sake? Is it emphasis? Or does each one denote something different? Rabbi Yosef ibn Yahya, who is, as I said, in the, in the other place where I taught this text, uh, a rabbi and teacher I'd never heard of before I came upon this text. Turns out he uh, was an Italian uh, rabbi in the uh, beginning, the end of the... Um, um, in the 16th century, mostly in the 16th century Italy. And not much of what he wrote survives, but this does. And he reads each of these words very differently from one another. And I'm going to, you have the English on the left, but I'm going to read it in the Hebrew. I like reading the text in the original. I'm going to give a line-by-line line translation that's mostly going to work with what's on the left there. The left, the, the translation here is my own anyway. The Jews had. Ora, they had light. Bimkom asher mitoch tsaratam. It's not clear exactly how he's using the word bimakom here. It could be bamakom in the place, that, or bimkom instead of. I'm reading it as instead of. They had light. Instead of what? Instead of, and his syntax is a little bit clunky, that from their tsaratam, from their tsuris, from their distress, nechshechu enehem merot. Their eyes were darkened from the ability to see. Their, 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 their light was obscured. They were like Egyptians in the ninth plague, right, where the Bayamesh Choshech, where there was so much dark, darkness, it was not just the absence of light, it was a, a palpable, heavy darkness. So the first thing that Rabbi Yosef and Yahya says, in what way do they have light? Right? He doesn't read this as kind of illumination as an idea, but literally they opened their eyes and they could see again. There have been so so distracted, so distressed that you know you haven't lost the power of vision, but somehow the power of vision isn't converting itself in the right way into the mind's cogitation. I certainly have that in the morning, right? When I open my eyes and I, I don't really make sense yet of what I'm seeing, but there is a more pathological version of that for people who are in emotional and mental distress, either because of emotional or mental illness or because of heavy circumstances where their eyes just are dark, they're, it's, 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 they're in the dark, right? They're in the dark not because they're blind, they're in the dark because they can't even process seeing. 
according to Yosef Ibn Yacha, that's what the Jews were like before the plot was thwarted. And all of a sudden they had aura, they, could, they had light again, they could see. So that's light. It's the spreading out. He's using the word ruchot, 16th century, obviously pre-Freud. doesn't know what the psyche is, but I'm understanding this to be like your, your, your spirit, your humors, the, 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 the parts of you that are, that are not tangible. It's the spreading out, the hit pashet, it's the spread out of your spirit's chutzah outward, bimkom, instead of, again, I'm reading bimkom as a sit here, da'agatam, their worries, al-tsaratam, their worries about their services that were causing darkness in the previous one, they, they were not only in distress, they were worried about their distress. And instead of having, be able to spread out their spirits externally, their worry about their service it's a kibbutz, it's a in-gathering of your spirits, pnima, inward. It's like, it's an emotional and spiritual quarantine, right? Where it's not only that you're facing something heavy, but you're facing it alone because you're not able to share it and, and, and you're not able even to get it out, right? You're, you're, this is um, a little bit uh, evocative of the midrash of the word Pesach as a notrikun, as a Greek word game that reads the word Pesach as two words, peh, mouth, sach, speak, that in Egypt, in slavery, the Israelites were, were, were mum. They were, they were mute. They couldn't say a word. They were just so demoralized. But when they were liberated, Pesach, obviously that's not what the word means, all of a sudden their mouths could speak again. Something similar was happening in Shushan. They just, even if they, even if they happened to see one another in the street, they were so distressed by what was about to befall them that they couldn't share any of their worry with each other. And so they not only were facing worry about their distress, they were facing worry about their distress alone. Sound familiar? The Sasson. So if that is Simcha, it's the undoing of that phenomenon. What is Sasson? It's the joy that comes from divine clinging, divine intimacy, by means of Ir HaKodesh. It's interesting to instrumentalize Jerusalem here, but it's basically saying there's a certain amount of divine, joyful intimacy and, and clinging that happens via Jerusalem, through Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the vehicle. And I think Jerusalem here is both literally and symbolically. Literally, the city, when you're there, certain Jews, I'm one of them, feels a certain something in Jerusalem that is that can only be accessed there. But it's also, I think, the symbolically, this notion of having some, you know, pilgrimage fantasy that you can aspire to that's grand that's beyond you that's 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 on, on, on a different realm that you can only you you need a certain amount of emotional space to even fantasize right even if you can't actually access it as it says in the book of isaiah chapter 66 verse 10 all those who mourned over her jerusalem will now get to rejoice with her Isaiah is saying that those who properly mourned over Jerusalem will get to in, enjoy the rejoicing, like almost like you've paid the price of mourning, now you get to enjoy it. I think the way Yosef ibn Yahya is saying it, that all, all of her people, Jerusalem's people, us, who were just in Avelut, were in mourning, are now once again able to fantasize about getting on a plane and going there, as it were. 
and it's not so as it were, because if you remember some of the history, to the extent that we can historicize the Purim story, it takes place after the decree of Cyrus the Great, who allowed, who ended the Babylonian exile, right? The, the Persians took over the Babylonians who had exiled the Jews. Cyrus allowed the Israelites to go, the Jews to go back to Palestine, to Palestine, to, to the land of Canaan, Israel. Not all of them did. Some of them stayed in Shushan and developed a pretty happy, uh, somewhat secular Galut diaspora society. And once, and, and, and maybe they imagined making occasional pilgrimages to Jerusalem when the threat of annihilation was upon them, they weren't booking their train tickets or their camel rides. But now that that has been removed, Jerusalem is again back on their spiritual map. Again, sound familiar? Whether you're Jerusalem in this case of, of what we have been held back from is actually Jerusalem or just the thing that you can haven't even been able to fantasize about, let alone actually do, now possibly return. Viakar, Yud Kufresh means something like glory or honor. It, it's used in, in, it can mean expensive. It's used in a lot of different ways. How does Yosef Ibn Yacha distinguish Yakar from the other ones? I love this. I love that he says this. What's Yakar? It's enjoying good stuff, material pleasures. Tovot Gashmiot. There's a lot written about Ruchniut, right? The spiritual joys, and the spiritual joys are more important than material joys. Yeah, it's also fun to enjoy the things that are actually tangibly, physically enjoyable. May Osher from plenty, from wealth. The hakavod and the joy that comes from from being, you know, taken care of in a, in a, in a covetic way. Tachat hitablam, instead of their mourning, kedai bizayon v'katzef. This is a very interesting proof text. I don't want to spend too long on it because there's so much to do. The proof text is from the first chapter of Esther, which is when they're talking about the concern amongst the Shushanite women uh, or, the, or the Shushanite uh, population, if they all... Um, what, what, what's going to happen to all the men in Shushan if all the women act as brazenly as Vashti? But the way it's being brought here is that they had had enough of their mourning, of, of abundant amounts of bizayon degradation and katsef and uproar. Enough of that, right? You don't, enough of, 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 of worrying about what's about to happen to you. How about enjoying a piece of cake or enjoying the sunrise? or enjoying what it feels to be in a comfortable chair. For they had been, as it were, sold like a bull off to slaughter. So when you are in existential threat, your favorite food doesn't taste like it normally tastes. By the way, when you're depressed, your senses are inhibited. Taste doesn't taste the same way. Smell doesn't smell what it normally does. That also has an interesting COVID overtone. So he's writing in the 16th century on a, on a verse in the book of Esther. His life story, Yosef Ibn Yacha, which I was able to read up on, may or may not illuminate some of what he's saying here. It depends on when he wrote this, and I do not know when he wrote a commentary on Esther. But I do know that Yosef Ibn Yahya lived a lot of his life as an exceedingly wealthy man, uh, and that he was the treasurer of uh, his community. And different historical reports argue with each other whether he got to Italy from Spain or he got to Italy from Portugal. But if you do the math, he was born in the end of the 15th century, 1490s, and eventually made his way to Italy. It's very likely that he and his family were exiles from the era of the Inquisition and found 
an opportunity to recreate life and develop wealth in Italy. And then, interestingly, he died. One second. He died. Um, sorry. Um, the, I, I forget about when he, when, when he died. The, the, in, ter in terms of what he lived through, is it possible that given how he, he and his family may have left Portugal or Spain to avoid persecution, is his commentary about how one lives in the aftermath of terror, which is how he's describing the, the, the Jews of Shushan, does ref reflect some of his inherited wisdom that his parents sh shared about what it took to rebuild their life in Italy, how you live a life after trauma and build a different life. We'll never know for sure, right? You know, it's that someone could, you know, read a sermon that I wrote eight years ago and guess based on what was happening in my life or in the world that that the reason why Rabbi Klickfeld wrote that sentence is because of this particular circumstance. Maybe, maybe not, consciously or unconsciously. But he did live through and was an inheritor um, as he's commenting on a community that had escaped the worst annihilation. He's living th with uh, an inherited narrative of his family having done something similar. So um, I, uh, I start here, right? That we are uh, not like um, the Jews of Shushan in many ways, but we are like them in that we've been hovering with impending doom. And that's not said lightly. Many people that we know and love have gotten very sick and have died. And even though hopefully none of us on this Zoom got that close, we weren't sure we weren't going to wake up tomorrow with the lot having been cast on our soul and us to be the one to claim next. And that is an enormous weight uh, that suppresses what it means to be human and that suppresses the way in which our eyes can see even when there's plenty of light in the room. It certainly has kept us from having what he describes as simcha, the joy of being able to share your life with one another. It has certainly kept us off of orbits and kayak and, and uh, all the places where we book our flights to imagine when we're next going to go to either the golden land, uh, you know, the golden city of Jerusalem, or somewhere else that's particularly meaningful to us. And things that we normally have enjoyed, we've enjoyed less as a result of this pain. So I am looking forward to, and I bless us, this is point number one, with the ability to reclaim Ora, Simcha, Sason, and Yikar slowly, right? we don't want to shock the system, so that we can once again be bathed in the light that's around us, enjoy each other in person, plan for when we next step foot in Jerusalem, if we're so lucky, and be able to taste things as they're meant to be. That's source number one. Source number two. This is the source where, that I, would not surprise me if a lot of you know some of the source. Some of you might know all of the source. Um, but normally when the source is taught, it's, it's taught kind of around Tu Bishvat um, often, and um, only a small piece of it uh, of the story uh, is shared. And I want to share the longer version of it for a variety of reasons. It has to do with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And by the way, even where I'm um, picking up in the end of Masechet Shabbat, Tractate Shabbat, page 33, side two, is already in the middle of the story. And basically, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai had insulted the Roman government, um, probably um, accurately, uh, and the word got to the local governor and his life was in danger. So that's what, that's what you have to know uh, 
in the beginning, that because of something he did that was brave and accurate, his life is in danger. And we pick up in the middle of the story. It's an Aramaic, so I'll be reading it on the right-hand side, but if it's if you recognize the letters, but not as many words as you normally would in a text, it's because it's Aramaic, not Hebrew. Azalhu uvrei, he, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and his son went to show Bei Midrasha. First, they went and they hid in a study hall. Right? They figured they would be protected by the other rabbinical students there, and they'd be protected even by Torah itself. Um, it seems like an obvious place that the Romans would go find him, but it's the first place of refuge. Kol yoma hava matya lehu devetu, rifta v'chuza demaya v'charchi. Every day, his wife, interesting in, in the Aramaic, one of the words for a wife is a house, debetu. You can see the word buy it in there. His, his wife, but literally his house, brought him some bread and a chuza demaya, a little jug of water, v'charchi, they would eat. By the way, you might notice that root, kaf, resh, kaf, as a verb to eat, you're going to see it again in about a month and two days. Korach, the Korach sandwich that Hillel would make is from the root, which means to like um, turn, uh, fold over into uh, kind of a sandwich. Um, it's in modern Hebrew, a karich is still a sandwich. It's one of the usages of Hebrew that tells us that back then matzah wasn't hard and brittle. It was soft and foldable. Um, and it actually was a verb to kar- Kaf reish kaf was to eat kind of a folded sandwich. And so they would, they would eat. It's not why I'm bringing it to you, but I thought I'd teach you some Hebrew or Aramaic along the way. Ki tekef gezirte, the order, you know, there was a, a wanted ad for Abishun Barachai. When it got even stronger and there was more pressure, Amar Levrei, he said to his son, this part is a little bit misogynistic, Nashim datan kala alehen. Women, their 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 minds are impressionable and and and, and overly permeable. Dilma la What if they torture her, and they, he, she reveals our location? If we take the gendered aspect out of it, it's actually a rather legitimate concern, and it has always been a concern for people who are hiding from authorities. And I'm going to put a story in here to reinforce that. Uh, many of you know that I've talked about it a lot. That kind of the Zionist ideologue of my family, Yisrael Eldad, of blessed memory who is my grandmother's first cousin, which feels like a very far mishpacha, um, but, but I, I, grew, up with, I grew, grew up with him and I'm still in touch with him, his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, which are my children's fourth cousins, very close. Um, and he, was, uh, he grew up in Poland. He fled to Palestine pre-state. His best friend was a guy named Menachem Begin. They got to, the, to Palestine um, uh, somehow uh, like taking trains all the way through uh, different parts of Europe to get there. Um, and my cousin um, uh, was kind of the, one of the ideologues of Lehi, the far-right underground. And several times during in pre-state, he uh, was hiding from the British, who, who wanted, uh, wanted him dead for reasons that I can understand, frankly, uh, from the British perspective. He always said that he was more afraid of and had more hatred towards the British than he did towards uh, the, the Arabs at the time. And several times he went into hiding and his wife, my, my aunt Batya, and their daughter Naama um, would arrange with the Lehi operatives to visit him in Lehi safe houses around uh, pre-state Israel. And Naama, who's still alive, would tell the story that she remembers, she was, uh, she was born in 19, so was like four or five years old. She remembers being told by her mom that she's going to visit Abba, 
And where are they going to go visit Abba? This time we're going to visit him in Paris. And then we're going to visit him in New York. And then we're going to visit him in London. And then we're going to visit him in Madrid. And his mother, her mother would tell her in, inaccurate information as to where they were meeting up with their father was in hiding, just in case she were captured and tortured. She would not be able to actually divulge where he actually was. Um, and she remembers that to this day. So aside from the fact that this is being specifically described about women, he had a concern here that the person who knew where they were would divulge it, and it wasn't safe enough. Okay. Azlu Teshubim Ma'arta. They went and they hid in a ma'ara, in a cave. Some of you visited the Galil in different trips to Israel. You may have been shown the cave that two, according to rather, um, <laughs> uh, rather specious tradition, uh, is the cave where Rabbi Yoshef, Rabbi Shemarachai hid. It's in a town called Pikin, which is a Druze village in the north of Israel. I've taught this text many times right there, even though I'm pretty sure that's not where it was. Such is the delight of leading trips to Israel. They hid in a cave. Itrachishnisa, a miracle happened for them. Ibri lehu charuva, and a carob tree, charuv, carob is from charuv, a carob tree just sprouted up very quickly for them. Ve'ena demaya, and a well of water, a spring of water. Ve'havu meshalchi manaihu, they would take off their uh, clothes. By the way, uh, Talmudic stories use, use very terse uh, Aramaic, and it takes many more words in English to tell the story in, 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 uh, in Aramaic. It's very tight writing, and it moves you through the story very quickly. So they would take off their clothing. They would sit up to their tzavarim, up to their um, necks in sand. Why? Anyone want to guess why they would sit up to their necks in sand? They were rationing. They had one, one, one set of clothing. And they didn't want to uh, either be you know, too cold or too hot. And sand actually holds on to the temperature, uh, the sand in the cave, the temperature of the earth. So they would spend most of their day not using the one set of clothing they have. Because as, you're see, as you're going to see, they're going to be there for a while. They were rationing. But they needed to keep their, their body temperature appropriate. Kuleyome garsti. It's uh, three words in Aramaic, many words in English. All day long, they would study Torah. Garsi literally means to study, but to study Torah. They would just learn and learn and learn and learn. They had no Netflix in the cave. Every time I read this line, particularly in COVID, I think about all of the hours trapped in my home when I could have been doing something a little more worthy or substantive than losing my mind in one more binge. The Idan Tsaloye Lavshi Mikaisu Umutsalu. When it came time to Davin, they're still from Jews. They would put back on their clothes and they would pray. That root saloye, you may notice it. You may know it from the line in the Kadisha Lame, Titkabel Sloton Uvauton. May our slot, may our prayers, may our requests be received. That's the Aramaic word for prayer. They would put on their clothes to pray. Then they would take their clothes off again. So they not get worn out. Why were they concerned that they were not going to get worn out? They had no idea how long it was going to last. I'll just say that for more obvious impact. They had no idea how long this confinement alone without access to the things they normally have access to would last, as they had to conserve. Ever wanted to feel good about how short our experience of the pandemic has been? Think about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. 
They sat there for 12 years. Obviously, this is a allegorical story. This is a fantastical story, but it's there to tell us a particular reason why they want us to imagine Rabbi Shun Bar Yochai and his son studying Torah in this cave alone for 12 years, not knowing when it was going to end. It's not like you know, they were told, you'll go in for 12 years. Just 12 years have passed by. Ata Eliyahu, all of a sudden Elijah comes. The Talmud invokes Elijah once in a while. Elijah, the biblical prophet whom we know, second, this is the second Havdalah reference so far in this, in this Shi'ur. Uh, he occasionally breaks into Talmudic stories in a fantasy. Um, one of the reasons why we believe that happens is that Elijah is one of the characters who is a significant amount is told about him in the Bible, but he never died. Never says, Vayamot Eliyahu. So he's sort of always alive, hovering in between this realm and that realm, which means he can visit the Talmud, he can visit us on Pesach, he can visit a bris, he can visit us every Saturday night. Elijah comes to visit Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son. And stood at the entrance to the cave, Amar, and said to whoever was listening, but he was really speaking to them, Man lode levar Yochai demit kesar uvtil gzirte. It's like, Who's going to tell Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that the king has died and the decree is over? I don't know why the story doesn't have him knock on the cave door and say, uh, Shimon, you can come out. I guess Elijah is into you know, more theatrics. Who, who can I get? Who can I get to tell Shimon Bar Yochai that it's over? You see there by the word, um, the word Kesar, right? Caesar, right? That's the Hebrew slash Aramaic word for what the Roman emperor was done by, Caesar. Who's going to tell him it's over? Meaning it's over. It's time to come out. The reason why um, I want to linger there for a second is that, um, you know, s- some of the connections between their experience in the cave and our experience in our caves should be you know, kind of plain, plainly and obviously uh, present. I've been thinking a lot about that, not the who, but the how. Not who's going to say it's over, but how are we going to know when it's over? We've been having this discussion in Daily Minion on a liturgical level. We've been making liturgical changes to our davening every day for 12 months. Every day, at least three things are added in. Actually, for some reason, we haven't been doing all of them on Shabbat. But for daily minyan, we've been adding in Avinu Malkeinu, even on days, and some of you are going to understand this reference, when we uh, don't say Tachanun, which is, uh, certainly doesn't seem like a day where we would say Avinu Malkeinu. We've been saying Avinu Malkeinu as a, as a, supplica- a supplication. We've been adding in Psalm 130, which is a prayer reaching out to God from the depths. And we've been adding in a special prayer for the era of the coronavirus that a colleague of mine. When do we stop saying it? Who's going to tell the Jews, the Temple Beth Aminion, that the decree is over? Is the CDC going to tell us that? Is the governor going to tell us that? Is the rabbinical assembly going to tell us that? Is it when every American citizen is vaccinated? Is it when there's no trace of the virus at all? Most viruses don't disappear completely. Is it when we're back to 94% of our normal routine? How will we know when we get to 94% or 88% or 70%? It's actually evocative for me to imagine Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son and Elijah wondering, like, how are we going to end this? How are we going to end it? He was concerned with, like, how is the message going to get to them? And we're concerned with how are we going to know that it's even worthy and timely to give them. In the story itself, we continue because they heard Elijah outside of the, of the cave. Nefaku, they came out. Chazu inashe de kakarvi vizari. They came out, and what did they see? They saw that life had continued in the 12 years they were there, and they saw people 
who are plowing and sowing. They saw farmers doing farming things, which farmer, farmers are supposed to be doing. Amri, they said to one another, Manichin olam v'oskin They, referring to the farmers, abandon eternal life, things of true value, and they're focusing only on momentary living. It's clear in the context of the story that talk about being blinded, these two rabbis, or rabbi and a son, who's going to be a rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, have been in a darkened cave studying Torah for 12 years, and they come out, and as soon as they are exposed to the illumination of the sun, it's clear how little they can see. And the Talmud, if you think that I'm just doing a modern reading of this, the Talmud is about to chastise, this, chastise them forever. They come out and chastise the people who are going about their lives, and the Talmud is about to chastise them for that chastisement, for that blindness that they are still smitten by, even though they finally... How do we know that? Every place that they would look, there was a, a bad movie that I saw in the 1980s. It was Superman 2, where one of the evil guys could just look at something and burn something with his eyes. Every place that they looked like a destructive laser, it would immediately burn up. Right? Their eyes rather than having been illuminated with 12 years of nonstop Torah study, had been kind of activated as weapons. Yats Tabatko, another voice that apparently that comes in and out of the Talmudic sources, and not only Elijah's voice, but a Batkol. It's an interesting two-word phrase. Bat means daughter or feminine presence of. Kol is a voice, the daughter of a voice. It doesn't make sense in English, but it's basically an, an angelic messenger bringing uh, God's, God's comment on a particular. A bat kol emerged from and said to them, You came out of the cave to re-enter the world to destroy. You came out with venom, with anger. You came out with judgment. This is what you've been waiting for. This is what you've been waiting to emerge to. Go back to your cave. You're not ready yet. You're not cooked. Your quarantine has not done what it was supposed to do, which was not only to spare you from the Caesar, but to refine your neshamas a little bit, to make you understand the world more. You understand the world less now. You understand the world in a more impoverished way because you lord over those who are actually just claiming the lives that God, that's not the end, to curse those who don't do it all the time. The end goal of Torah study is to understand the beautiful complexity of this world. Go back to Hadur Azul Itivu Tresar Yarchesha. Again, so much said in so few words. Hadur, they returned. Azul, they went. Itivu, they sat. Tresar Yarche Shata. This time they sat for 12 months. So you see the, the playfulness of the numerology. They had been in there for 12 years. They had to go back for one more year. 12, but the 12 returned. Amri, they said, this is going to be evocative for anyone who's ever uh, said Kaddish for a parent. Mishpat rishaim begehinom shneim asar chodesh. They said to one another at the end of the 12 months, you know, the court cases for the most wicked of the wicked who are being judged by the, you know, by the, by the harshest court in Gehinom is only 12 months. Meaning however bad we were such that we were sent back into our cave for, to, to cook more in there, we, we must have done our penance. The association with mourning a parent is that many of you know that um, when a parent dies, 
you um, you mourn for 12 months, you only say Kaddish for 11 months. Why do you only say Kaddish for 11 months? Because part of your recitation of Kaddish is Elui Nishmatam for the for the to help their souls ascend and some ways to be part of the their defense in the Beit Din Shalmala in the supernal court. Um, see these this per, this deceased person has has devoted descendants down on earth who are who are pleading their case, saying Kaddish every single day, three times a day. And the idea is, do you want to suggest that it's your parent whose case needs the full 12 months of being judged like the worst of the wicked in Gehinom? Obviously not. So you stop saying Kaddish a month before the site, and I'll put a parenthesis in a parenthesis. It was a fascinating conversation when I was on the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards of the Conservative Movement as to whether or not someone who is mourning a wicked and cruel parent. A, are they obligated to mourn or is it cruel to obligate someone to mourn a cruel parent? And there was a counter opinion, which I thought was fascinating, that said, you should say Kaddish for 12 months. Not that you shouldn't say Kaddish, but that you actually say the Kaddish of the person whose case might need the longer adjudication in Beitin Shilma. And parentheses and then under other and, and other parentheses. They figured we can now go out a second time. Yatsta bat kol yamra. The bat kol comes again and says, Okay, now you can come out of your cave a second time. Nefaku, they came out. Pause one second. You may be making these associations already in your mind. I can make it explicit. I think it's sad and true to say that because of our eagerness and at times our judgmentalism, of the authorities or the people who are not listening to the authorities, we as a society emerged before we were supposed to. And the Batkol came to us and said, go back into your caves, except that the Batkol was not a heavenly voice. It was a surge. It was a rising number of deaths. It was society telling us that we have not learned from our, incar- from our quarantine, our incarceration, what we were supposed to in terms of how to take care of the society. So we experienced, and I hope we don't experience again, a version of the second return to restriction so that we can finally emerge to a society that's ready and as people who are ready to contribute to it as we're supposed to. They came out. Rabbi Elazar is his son. So it's interesting. They come out, but it's still a father-son relationship. And the father is still a little more wise and learned and tame. Elazar is a firebrand. He still had eyes that burned. Every place that he would strike, every place that he still had an instinct to say that someone was not doing the right thing or someone was wasting their time plowing or sowing, Rabbi Rabbi Shimon, his father, would use his healing powers to make the situation okay. Even after the second incarceration, Rabbi Elazar was not ready to come out. Amarlo, he said to him, B'ni dail olam aniva ata. You could write a lot of sermons on that one. He says to his son, my son, the world would be sufficient with just me. I want to pause here. Mostly this is going to be me teaching. I want to pause here because it's such an evocative line. What do you think in the story Rabbi, Eli, Rabbi Shimon meant when he said that to his son? And one step up, what is the story saying to us by including that piece of dialogue? What does it mean when he says the world would be enough if it just had me and you? or the way it's translated here. This, this is not my translation. This is translation online. My son, you and I suffice for the entire world. 
what does Rabbi Shimon mean and what is the story meaning with it? Carl and then Norman Rachel. Got to unmute Carl. There you go. Okay. So until you translated slash interpreted for me, I, I had a completely different meaning in my head. Please. Of, uh, you and I suffice for the entire world. My take was that between the two of us, with our admonishing uh, a badness on the one hand and the healing uh, difficulty on the other hand, we can take care of the whole world. The, the two of us can do enough admonishing and healing for everyone. Uh-huh. Not that we two are sufficient to the world and everybody else can disappear, drop dead. Uh-huh. So, so we represent kind of the, the, the extreme platonic version of, of admonition and also the extreme platonic version of compassion and forgiveness. And, and that's all the world needs. And we, we represent all of that. And that's a yes. You said it better than me. Thank you. I just said what you said, but I chose different words. Uh, Norman, Norman, Rachel, your read. Um, I think that he's really saying to his son that the sacrifice or the great effort that we made, this perfect effort that we did to do the proper and pious thing will suffice for sustaining the whole world. And so you shouldn't be angry at the other people who went about their lives, like, like mentioned, but you should feel like we did this, we made this great effort, and it was enough for us to do that. That's a beautiful read, Norm, right? So rather than read that line as... And that's why we named the lobby after him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I forgot that while I was teaching this text. Um, That's... So rather than read it as Carl did, which is also a good read, that, that this represents the balance of the fire and the healing, he's actually admonishing his son. There's no reason to go striking everything because we, we've done enough tshuva and we've done enough, enough learning. The world's going to be fine and with, with our contributions to it. Lovely. Anyone else want to add a potential read on it? Okay. We'll leave it as it is because it just almost is best um, um, left, left as a question mark. One more part of the story, and this is to the extent that you've, you've read some of the story before, that, you know, the Tubishvati story of the carob tree, there's yet another piece which um, uh, is just much less frequently uh, studied. Shema Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, Chatnei. So Rabbi Pinchas, the son of Yair, who is Rabbi Shimon's son-in-law, heard the news that his father-in-law emerged, got out of prison, got a quarantine, unafak l'ape, and went to greet him. Aile leve vane, took him into the bathhouse, hadn't had a shower in quite some time. This is such a sweet, he would tend to his father's, father-in-law's flesh, bisre, basar, skin. He saw that it was cracked and crevices. Imagine the, you know, the, 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 fan, the fantasized image of what this person's body was like after all this. He took care of him because Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the way I'm reading this, is like he's ready. He's learned finally what he's supposed to learn, but he's broken and he's ill and he needs tending and he's vulnerable and he's reliant on someone who didn't go through what he just went through. His son-in-law attends to him. Havakabache, he started crying. Who started crying? The Talmud is, is famous for not telling you who's the who. You have to do the little guesswork. Most people read this as Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair started crying. It's like he's tending to his father-in-law and he's, he's weeping at the scene. The kanatran dimat ene, And 
his tears would fall from his eyes and would cause pain to the person he was trying to heal because he's open wounds, tears are salty, right? And he's crying over his father-in-law as he's trying to heal him. And while he's trying to heal him, he's injuring him. This is also evocative, if you know the Midrash, that, um, that the angels were crying at um, the binding of Isaac over the trauma they were witnessing. And the, um, the, the, the tears come down. Some Midrashim have it as that, that it was the tears that came down and made the knife slip out of Abraham's hand. And some, they say that it burned, burned their eyes. So he's crying over his father who's trying to heal and the tears are physically and perhaps, as we'll see in a bit, emotionally wounding It's hard to be cried over. It's hard to be in a state. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where someone seeing you in the state you're in caused them to weep because you were in so much pain, physical pain. It's hard to, to be present to someone else's um, weeping over you. Amarlo, he said to him, who said to whom? We have to guess, but Rabbi Pinchas said to his father-in-law, Oily shiritich, oily shiritich I can't believe I had to see you in this condition. Oily. It's terrible for me that I saw you like this. Amazing and unexpected response. Rabbi Shumbar Yachai says, Ashrecha shiritich, No, you don't get it. You're fortunate that you're seeing it. If I pause here, and, if you, and I guess uh, I haven't um, pulled down the screen, so you might be looking at it on your own Google Act, you'll see the rest of the text. If I pause here and you haven't read the rest of the text, what might, it's kind of obvious what Rabbi Pinchas means when he says, it's so awful for me to see in this condition. What, right, what might Rabbi Shimon mean when he says back to him, you're so fortunate that you're seeing me like this. What are the possibilities? Anyone? I can just read the rest of the text too. Rabbi? Yeah, I, didn't, so, I only see if people are digitally raising their hands, not their actual hands. So yes, Michael. Oh, oh I'm Michael. Um, is it the possibility that he's anticipating assistance from his son-in-law? In, in which case... The ashrecha He's relieved is, that somebody's there to help him. Uh-huh. Right. So meaning you, my son-in-law, should feel wonderful that you're seeing me like this because I actually needed someone like you to help me. And so you're, and you're having a privilege of helping me. Right. That's, that, 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 that's a lovely emotional read. It's not the way the story goes, but I still want to log that read as a possibility, right? That, that I'm giving you the opportunity to do the mitzvah of tending to my distress. I'll read, I'll keep going in the text. If you had not seen me like this, this is like a little, um, kind of a, a, a little, I don't know how to say it, like a, a riddle. You would not have found within me this. What does that mean? If you had not seen me like this, you would not have found within me this. Remember that we've been building to this notion that what was happening in the cave, which happened as a result in the beginning, we're so far from the beginning of the story of him having to run for his life, is that they had to learn something. They had to get wise. They had to sharpen their minds for good. So what he's saying to his son-in-law is, if you hadn't seen me, you wouldn't have seen what's in me. And what's in me? This is now the the anonymous voice of the Talmud uh, speaking, which no longer... Rabbi Shimon speaking. Rabbi Shimon's quotations ended, ended it, uh, you wouldn't see this in me. And now the Talmud is explaining. Originally, before all this, it was the son-in-law that was sharper than the father-in-law. Every time Rabbi Shimon would raise a question, makshe, a kusha, a hard issue, 
Hava mefarikle Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair Tresar Peruke. His son-in-law, the ascendant scholar, would provide uh, 12 different uh, answers to it. Notice the play on the number 12 again. 12 months, 12 years, 12 months, 12 answers. Originally, Rabbi Shilohar Yachar, yeah, he was a rabbi, but he wasn't the sharpest in his Beit Midrash. He wasn't even the sharpest in his family. His son-in-law could kick his tuchas when it comes to answering kushiot on the, on the text. Lesof, after this, ki makshe Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair kushia. When Rabbi Pinchas would ask his father-in-law a hard question, hava mafarik lei Rabbi Shilohar ben Yochai esrin ba'arba'a peruke. Rabbi Shimon Yerchai would answer him with 24. So in the 12 months, 12 years and 12 months, Rabbi Shimon Yerchai was learning Torah. He leapfrogged his son-in-law and doubled the amount of potential explanations he could give to any question that his son-in-law would have done for him before. Right? And so he says to his son-in-law, you think you're, that I'm suffering? Woe is you because woe was me because I look so terrible? My skin is cracked, but my mind is sharp. My body is racked, but my soul is enlightened. And I now can emerge finally from this cage, cave. It's interesting, Freudian slip that I said cage. You know, weakened in some obvious way because you can see it in me, but I've got a strength and I've got a, a gift to offer the universe that I wouldn't have had without. It's that last piece of the story in addition to the little pieces along the archipelago that we connected to that I think is most evocative for us. And that is this retrospective gratitude that Rabbi Shimon Bar had for his incarceration, as if what he learned in that crucible ends up being crucial for the, per- per- for the perpetuation of the tradition and the sharpening of ideas. And so I say, after this long text, to you and to myself, what will you be leaving with as your skin is cracked, as it were? as all of the obvious ways that you will have suffered. And we will have suffered. It's okay to say that we will have suffered this year. How are you strong? What can you contribute to your society? You would only have been able to contribute because of what you learned at step. And over at about an hour, the next texts are, I will try to end all this in about, in the fourth chapter of the book of Esther, when Mordechai and Esther are still strategizing about how to save the Jews, and Esther, you know, she's, she's, she's understood to be a heroine. It's such a complex story, obviously. Um, but she's, she, she, in, the, in the beginning, she's as unwitting a heroine as Moshe is a savior, right? She, she kind of is forced into this terrible you know, beauty pageant slash you know, sexual enslavement. Um, and at the beginning of that, she's just getting used to her life, living with Ahasuerus. She doesn't see herself as being a, a leader or a savior. And Mordechai has to tell her, or gets to tell her, or chooses to tell her, no, you're in a unique position. If you're quiet, Esther, if you keep your tongue quiet, at this moment, the eight hazot, I want you to know the Jewish people are not going to disappear. There will be relief and saving from for the Jews from another source. Some people, by the way, read 
you know, there's a tradition of topsy-turvy and masks and God's name is never in the text, but that means you have to look and see where God's name is in the text. And some people read the makom acher here as a hint to God in the same way as hamakom yinachem, right? It's going to come, it's not going to come from you. It's going to come from some other makom that God, uh, that, that God will indicate. Va'atu beit avich, and you and your father's house, which by the way, means Mordechai too, because he's from that household. Tobedu, you will disappear, you'll be lost. Umiodea, who knows? So interesting that that is a phrase in biblical Hebrew in the same way it is in English. Who knows? Who knows? Im le'et kazot, im here means kind of weather. Weather for this time, le'et kazot, the ka is hard to deal with, ka, like this time, a time like this, hard to render into perfect English, he got lamachut, that you arrived at your royal, meaning you have an opportunity. Uh, the shot seems to be you have an opportunity because of your particular access that you may not be happy that you got, but you have an opportunity to do something that you couldn't do if you had you not had this access. That's the shot reading. I want to share with you a commentary on this by Emmanuel of Rome. Who was he? His name was Emmanuel ben Shlomo ben Yekutiel. Emmanuel, the son of, son of Sol- Solomon, the son of Yekutiel. He was born in Rome in the year 1261. So this is a very early medieval uh, rabbi. He died in the um, uh, 1328 elsewhere in Italy. And I, I got confused before. When I, when I mentioned before that the pre, that Yosef Ibn Yacha was a very wealthy man and was the community treasurer, it was Emmanuel of Rome. So, I, so scratch that from him, apply, apply it to, to Emmanuel of Rome. Um, he was, uh, in addition to being uh, a prolific writer and poet, and uh, astronomer and scientist, and he knew many languages. He clearly knew Italian, and he knew Arabic, and he, he was a, a really worldly, literally a pre-Renaissance Renaissance man. He was also extremely wealthy, came from wealthy. Keep that in mind for a second. Look what he says on this. Who knows if for a time like this, you arrived at your royalty? Kilomar, as if to say, the first thing he's going to say is what is a version of the shot I just shared with you, but I'm going to share it you in, in his words. Yacholio, it could be. Shalohi got lamachut, you only got to this level of royalty, rock ba'avor, only in order to zeha'ed for this moment. It was it was intended. You got here for this moment. Shahu eight sarat, it's a time of great distress. Kadesha Tatsil, so that you save Otam. You see, you you save the Israelites. Um, Hashem, and as if God only intended, this is now Emmanuel of Rome putting God very much into the story, that you arrive at this level, he's a little repetitive, of, of royalty, so that you can be a protector, magain, a shield, it's another word for a shield, you might know it from in Psalm 91, uh, that God that faith in God and in God's truth is a is a shield over us, so that you could shield Israel. That's the standard way of reading it, which I think makes sense. He offers another read, which he's a. I'm going to give you the spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. He discredits. He's about to give us a commentary that he doesn't think is the right commentary, but I think it's a great commentary and it's worth resurrecting. Some read it differently. This is a read that's based on a. On, on, a tech, on a grammatical technica, um, a technical piece of grammar, but it opens up a different way of understanding what's being conveyed here. There's some read it, 
that line, who knows if for a time like this, means kolomar, who knows whether or not if next year, a year from now, if you're still going to be in this position, you take it for granted that you have access now, you think, ah, I'll do it, I'll, I'll do what I can do at another time. Who knows if a year from now, you're still going to have this access. Kamosha at ata, just like you have now. The Amar, and this is the technical grammar piece, and, and, and the text says, he got, you arrived, past tense, bimkom tagi, you will arrive. Meaning this commentary rests on our reading the verse as saying, who knows if you will arrive at this level of royalty, imla eight kazot, at a time like this next year. Subtle difference. Then he says, Perush Harishon Nachon. He likes his first commentary. I like his second commentary. I like his second commentary, which he rejects for us. For us. And what I want to say about it is in some ways extremely obvious, but worth saying. We all we know ever is what we have and who we are now. That's certainly true in a non-pandemic world, in that it's you know proper to have far-off plans because you can't do everything all at once. Um, But life and our texts tell us all the time that since we don't know the future, it's what you do with what you have right now that matters. Perkebo says, do tshuva one day before you die, right? Because since you may die tomorrow, I hope you don't, uh, make sure you'll have done tshuva today. Um, Extract the most that can be extracted from this moment. What I want to say about this is both retro active and for this moment. We ought to have been living as much as we possibly could this past year, as if this was not the worst it could be, but the best it could be. Because we kept hoping for things to get better, but sometimes it got worse. And I certainly hope that when we come to Purim 2022, all of this will be past tense and history, and we'll be back together again at 95% normal. But I don't know that. And if I wait to start living my life and living my Jewish life based on what I think is coming then, I'm going to lose because all I know is what is now. So based on what is possible and safe and acceptable and legal and well-reasoned now, that's how I have to make my decisions about how I live, about how I Jew, about how I give, about how I hold myself. What's interesting about the historical um, life of Emmanuel of Rome is that he died uh, in 1328. In thir- and I don't know when he wrote this commentary. I don't know at what point in his life. In 1325, three years before his life, this, his life ended, this wealthy, well-respected, well-regarded scholar and benefactor lost all of his fortune. He lost all his money. He died destitute. And because of the way life was set up then, and in some ways still is right now, when he lost his fortune... The, the books that are written about him says that he lost his friends and his community and his stature. He lost his shekels and he lost his board positions and he lost his kavod and he lost the kiddushes he could sponsor. He was deserted by the people who were most significant. I, I'm not sure if it's more or less achy to think of him writing this commentary before that happened or after it happened. If before it happened, it's eerily prescient. If after it happened, it's wisdom learned in a very painful last text, a little bit of a whimsical text, very short. It's from the Talmud Bava Kama, page 37a. And it comes as a 
sweet, cute little story um, after a page and a half of very wonky economics about the different about the the uh, how to handle the payments of penalties based on the coinage of the region versus the coinage of the town and whether biblical punishments go by different coinages of rabbinic punishments and all has to do with um, Zuzim. Um, And there are some punishments uh, based on this math, which I don't want to get into where what you, all you owe is half a Zuz, half a Zuz, like a half penny, like almost nothing. Okay. With that in mind, and, and, and not really relevant anymore to the story, Hanan Bisha. It seems that his name was Hanan, and he had kind of a nickname, Bisha. Bisha means like odious, wicked, like almost an embarrassment. So his name is Hanan the bad guy. Takale So which means that simultaneously, we shouldn't learn from him, or we are him. He's either a no man, or he's an everyman. Right? That's, the, that's the rhetorical game here. He hit a guy. He got mad, he hit a guy. He came in front of Rav Huna for his sentence, right? Back in the good old days when, when the rabbis would, would tell you the penalty for hitting somebody. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want someone to come to my office and ask me, ask me how much they owe for hitting someone across the face. No, I don't. Amarle, Rav Huna said, Zeal, Havle, Palga de Zuza. It wasn't such a bad hit. Give him half a Zeus. Like a nothing, a grush, an agura. And Asimon, shall I keep going? Give him half a Zeus. Havale Zuza Maka. Hanan Bisha checks in his wallet, and he doesn't have a half Zeus. But he does have like a Zeus that was like 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 clipped or it was bruised or it was it was uh it, I don't know, think of like a coin where you can no longer see Lincoln's face on it because it's been rubbed over, it was run over by a bus too much. So he has a full Zeus, but is blemished. He wanted to give half of it to the guy that he owed money to. Like, he wanted to give it from this. He wanted to take his blemished full dollar and give a half dollar. By the way, this is real. Have you ever had like a dollar bill that's so worn out that you don't know if it's current tender anymore? Or I remember learning as a kid, I don't know if it's, if it's a um, urban legend or not, that if as long as you have slightly more than half of a dollar bill, it's considered full tender, even if it's just 51%, because it's still the case that only $1 will have been made valuable from that piece of paper. So, so I, don't, I, I don't think you could try that at CVS, but I remember learning that as a kid, that if you had, you know, if a, if a dollar bill was cut in half and you only had 60% of it left, it was still worth a dollar. He wanted to give a half zoos from this full injured zoos. Lo hava mishtakale. He couldn't find a single money trader, believe it or not, who would take his his blemished half zoos, uh, full zoos, and turned it into two half zoos. So he's stuck, owing a half zoos penalty, and all he has is a full zoos. Takale acharina. What did he do? He hit him again. Viahave nehile. He says, here, take a zoos. Now, that's like a helm joke and a Yiddish cup and, and, uh, a, a, and an insulting story and an interesting story all at once, right? On one level, the Talmud is saying, don't act like this guy. What, he couldn't go to another money changer and get the half Zeus, so he decided that he would, since, all, since he was going to pay the full Zeus fine anyway, might as well get his full smack in? Or this is an everyman comment being dressed up in a um, darkly comical way. 
And the Musar Haskel, the lesson to pull out of it, is actually something of substance, which is the way I'm choosing to read the story now, even if it's not the way it was intended. And that is, sometimes you realize you've already paid the full price. You're already in for the full investment. You've already been taxed the full amount. You might as well at least extract as much benefit as, as you can. In the story, it's the hitting the innocent guy a second time. I don't suggest. In our lives, we've already paid a full zoos to society and to community as a result of what we've had to live with. We might as well then take as much out of it as we possibly can because we can't reduce the payment. We can't break this zoos into two halves. It extracted so much from us. There was no way around it if we were going to be responsible ethical people. We had to pay the full price. And, and or we chose to because we're good people. All right. We can we can you know wring our wring our garments and 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 gnash our teeth and say, I wish I hadn't didn't have to give up 12 months of my life. Six months I would have been willing to. I wish I didn't have to give up, you know, three vacations. One I would have been willing to give up. I wish I wouldn't have been willing to give up seeing my parents three times. Once I would have been willing to. We had no choice. We were already, we were told what the price was. What can you pull out? If you combine this story from the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai story at the very end, what is it that you will be emerging with your cave with? I hope, first of all, that we will be emerging soon. I hope that we'll be healthy. I hope that we'll be emerging with our eyes newly able to see things that are new, that we'll be back together one again, having that kind of simcha that will dream about pilgrimages with Sasson and that we will once again experience the world as we start the very beginning of year two, which I hope will never reach pandemic conclusion, richly deserved. If you're fasting tomorrow and meaningful fast, I wish you in advance a You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.